some interesting presentations that we're going to get to listen to this morning, and then I'm sure there will be intense debate in question and answer, so we should do everything we can to get started. So welcome, everyone, to this Kuwait Research Program LSE Gulf Breakfast Briefing. Nominally, the title of this morning's uh, presentations is The Political Economy of Fiscal Stability in the Gulf. Now, these are, of course, wide-ranging issues, and the speakers that are up here with me on the, on, the, on the table here have a broad remit to talk about a wide range of issues. My name is Danny Kwa. I'm professor of economics here at the LSE and Kuwait professor. Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome all of you here and to chair this morning's meeting. As you know, the two speakers that we've got up here shape Dr. Mohammed Sabah and Dr. Stephen Hertog. Um, both have well-developed, sharp, and interesting views on the topics that we will be discussing. What I will do is make a very slight, give a very slight introduction on each of them, and then hand over, where each will get 15 minutes to give us their initial thoughts and presentation on the topic. After that, I would like to throw the meeting open to a question and answer session. So while all of this is going on, please do feel welcome to enjoy your breakfast in these very elegant surroundings. Um, Sheikh Dr. Muhammad Sabah is the former Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs of the State of Kuwait. Um, he and I were PhD students together and the economics department at Harvard University. And it's a great personal pleasure for me to see him here again. He's currently chairman of the board of directors of the Kuwait Fund for Arab Economic Development. After Harvard, he had, pre he had served as the Kuwait ambassador to the United States of America and was associate professor of economics at Kuwait University. Dr. Stephen Hertog, our other presenter, is a senior lecturer in comparative politics here at LSE in the Department of Government. He was also previously Kuwait professor at Science Po, and he has a range of professional appointments throughout the world. Most recently, he has published a new book, Princes, Brokers, and Bureaucrats, Oil and the State in Saudi Arabia. So as you can tell, both of these speakers will have sharp views on the topic at hand, a topic that all of us will be centrally concerned about in light of the state of the global economy around us. So if I could turn to Sheikh Dr. Mohammed to begin. Well, thank you very much, uh, Danny. It's, it's great to, uh, to be here today, and uh, I'm very pleased to be invited to this uh, important uh, gathering. Uh, it, has, uh, it has been said that economists uh, look at theory and wonder whether it works in the real world. And it's equally true that economists look at the real world and wonder whether it works in theory. So uh, I'll try my level best to not to make a, a, a theoretical presentation of the subject matter. Uh, today, but uh, to, to mix a little bit of theory and a little bit of the real world. Well, when I was 
told uh, by Ian that the uh, subject is about fiscal sustainability. I, uh, as, as Danny said, I have been away from academia for quite some time, so I ran to my uh, Google and Googled sustainable development, and, and boy, uh, there are uh, more than 300 different definitions of what is sustainable development. Uh, and it's very popular, and it's, uh, there's a cult culture now for sustainability around the world, actually. It's not only economists, but politicians, and environmentalists, etc. But at any rate, be that as it may, uh, the principal question about sustainability is whether a current economic or fiscal policy of a country would be able to uh, uh, allow a country to re repay back its debt. Is, is the current policy sustainable in that sense? And, uh, and it's a good indicator because it gives an idea to a country whether uh, if they run into problems, whether was a sort of range of options. And uh, one of the options, some countries are opted for basically insolvency. Uh, and what I have in mind is the current situation in Greece and, uh, and recently in Dubai when the, uh, the, uh, the, the bankruptcy auction was less painful than other options. But when, when it comes to the question of sustainability in the presence and the existence of exhaustible resource, the, uh, the, uh, the debate changed quite substantially because the uh, insolvency is not, is not the issue anymore. Uh, the, uh, the, the issue of there are a host of issues that transcends the, the, this, this simple issue of solvency. It uh, involves a moral and ethical issues as well. And what is so special about the nature of the uh, of, of this resource uh, is that it's uh, it's highly uh, it's highly volatile, extremely unpredictable, and definitely exhaustible. And I would like to touch on each of what that means and how it's been uh, applied in the real world. Now, with respect to exhaustibility, the, uh, let me give you an example of what sort of issues uh, oil exporting countries are, are facing, or, or GCC countries are facing now. From only 30 years ago, um, one of the richest countries in the world in terms of per capita income is really a small island uh, not far away from my friends Danny's homeland, uh, Naro. I don't know whether anyone of you have been there. But it's a, it's a resource-based economy, phosphate, and it was the, the richest country in the world. That was 30 years ago. They depleted their resource, and now it's one of the poorest. Uh, this is the kind of example that hits GCC countries, and, and this is the sort of concerns that they constantly have. And the holy grail, if you will, uh, in the GCC is to find a fiscal rule, a set of fiscal policies that will maximize the social welfare of a society given the exhaustibility constraint. And if, if you work out the, uh, the problem, and I'm sure that if you are a, a student at the LSE, 
you would find, you can easily find the optimal depletion resource that would give you the most important result, and that is intergenerational equity. Uh, and that would be a sustainable policy. In, uh, in, in, in the non-technical uh, words, uh, the concerns of, uh, of uh, oil-based economies uh, is not whether they are going to be solvent or insolvent in terms of financial abilities, but whether they will, will have enough resources for future generation to sustain their welfare in the post-oil uh, economy. Uh, with respect to the volatility and uncertainty, this injects uh, a concept in the, in the profession and, uh, and it's, I don't want to, to, to dwell on this a, a lot. Maybe I'll leave it to the question I asked, but it has to do with something called the Dutch disease, and which is basically that a resource windfall uh, distort the working of economic mechanism by shifting resources from uh, tradable goods to non-tradable goods, and that leads to deindustrialization. We'll discuss about that later. The way to protect an economy from this Dutch disease and volatility of the oil resource is to try to insulate and sterilize this inflow of resources. And by doing that, uh, and the way to do that is to create uh, a special fund, off-balance sheet fund, uh, to insulate the economy from the volatility uh, and the uncertainty of the oil market. Um, the most, I mean, Kuwait have done this was one of the first countries actually to establish such such a fund. Established it actually in the mid-50s uh, here in London, called the Kuwait Investment Office. Uh, and now we changed that later in, uh, in the mid-70s, and we call it explicitly the Fund for a Future Generation. And it, and it is an, an allocation rule uh, where we deduct 10% of annual uh, government revenues to be deposited in this uh, fund. Uh, the most, uh, the other very important experience is the Norwegian uh, rule, which is called the bird in hand rule, and that is to consume the return of their uh, oil investment. And the third uh, aspect of this re resource uh, is that that this this resource accrue to the government. I mean, governments in the oil producing countries, uh, almost all of them, uh, the, the OPEC, OPEC countries, governments are the sole ownership uh, of the resource. And that brings a host of issues called, uh, in the literature, resource curse issues, which are, uh, and the, maybe the most famous study by uh, another Harvard uh, <coughs> Economists uh, Jeff Sachs and, and Warner, uh, in their famous 1995 uh, research where they studied 18, uh, 80 uh, resource-based economies over the period from 1970 to 1990, over 20-year period, and they found that resource-poor economies tend to outperform resource-rich economies in terms of economic growth. And that was a very startling uh, 
findings. Uh, and everybody was asking why uh, resource-rich countries tend to perform poorly relative to, than resource-poor uh, countries. And it has often been thought that the seductive nature of the natural resource rent uh, have a tendency to destroy government behavior. Uh, and during a resource boom, resource rent flow freely with ease into government budget. Large windfall entice government to pursue political profiteering and play the game of politics without limits. But maybe we'll talk about that later. Uh, so in a nutshell, you have three pressure, you have the intergenerational equity pressure to uh, for oil countries, OPEC countries, <coughs> GCC countries to follow a conservative uh, fiscal policy. You have the volatility and the Dutch disease pressure to, again to follow a conservative fiscal policy. And you have the resource curse uh, pressure to follow a conservative fiscal policy. So what is the record have been over the past few years? If we look at the, the record, we see the other way around, uh, the, dramatically different uh, fiscal policy. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, it has been a very expansionist uh, fiscal policy in the, in the GCC. Why? Because of the Arab Spring. Uh, and this is where, um, uh, where I, I will present some, some data. Uh, first of all, I don't have to tell you the, 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 uh, the significance of the oil resource of the GCC. Uh, GCC are extremely long in this assets. Uh, Kuwait, Qatar, the Emirates, we have more than 100 years worth of reserves at the current rate of production, Saudi Arabia 75 years. Only Bahrain and Oman are expected to exhaust their resource within the next two decades. Um, in terms of per capita um, reserves, Qatar stands out with a, with a 770,000 barrels of oil equivalent per person. Uh, the Emirates, uh, 140, Kuwait is about 100,000. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Oman, and uh, Bahrain is uh, 60,000, 5,000, and 3,000 barrels, respectively. Uh, also, the uh, Oil has been uh, quite significant uh, in terms of financing government budget. 77% of the total foreign exchange earnings are from uh, oil exports. Uh, but it, it's interesting to know that Kuwait stands out as the most oil-dependent country in the GCC. This is important. This is where uh, that over the period 2006-2010, the oil sector in Kuwait generated 95 percent of government revenues, and 93 percent of exports. These facts make Kuwait the most vulnerable to Dutch disease and resource curse phenomena. Um, and more disturbing is the dominance of the government position in non-oil economy. Again, Kuwait government has an overwhelming presence in domestic non-oil economic activities. That is unparalleled in other GCC. For the period 2000 to 2009, Kuwait government expenditure represents around 80% of the non-oil GDP, while the closest in the GCC was Oman and Saudi Arabia with 66%, and Qatar is 
The Arab Spring certainly has exasperated the fiscal imbalance of the GCC. The Arab Spring, to be sure, forced GCC countries to undertake populist measures and po policies. Government spending increased by almost 20% in 2011, from 300 billion to 200, uh, in, in 2010 to $360 in 2011. Most of the spending was for jobs, creation, wages, housing, and other social programs. As a matter of fact, the ILO report recently indicated that the youth unemployment, and this is, I guess, what Stevens is going to talk about, uh, that the youth unemployment in GCC in 2009 was nearly double the global rate of 12.8%, a fact that might explain the surge in public spending on job creation. Uh, and I list some of the examples, but the, uh, the continued turmoil in the global financial markets, uh, the euro crisis and the possible contagion to Asian markets suggest a considerable downside risk to oil prices. A risk, as risk aversion rises globally, capital inflow into GCC may also slow down and earnings of GCC external assets might decline. The World Bank predicted a 3.4% decline in oil prices in 2013, and another half percentage point drop in 2014. Hence, the combination of both, rising public expenditures and declining or softening oil prices, will certainly face the GCC with a serious financial challenges. The budget break-even prices have risen substantially in recent years, and it will continue to rise in these trends if these trends continue. A recent study by Kuwait International Competitiveness Committee, they predicted that without constraining public spending, Kuwait will face serious budget deficits in less than 10 years, even under the most optimistic oil price scenario. The finding was confirmed by a recent IMF study. The, the IMF warned Kuwait of looming, looming budget deficit if it doesn't cut spending by at least 25 billion by 2017. To be sure, in his letter of resignation a few weeks ago, the former governor of the, governor of the Central Bank of Kuwait described the current economic scene as a runaway fiscal policy with unprecedented financial chaos. He emphasized that time is running out Kuwait needs to use its temporary financial surpluses to affect economic reform rather than to avoid it. And finally, the finance minister, who resigned just a couple of weeks ago, confirmed in a statement before Parliament a uh, few weeks ago that 73% of the oil revenues are spent on wages and salaries. He estimated Kuwait break-even price to be no less than $107. And if the current trends of public spending continues, then he estimated the break-even price to be $213. In short, finally, the current fiscal policy is unsustainable. Hmm. Government and parliament must work together to reserve, reverse the current dangerous trends. Failing to do so now will have dire consequence, consequences on the social and economic fabric of society the integrity of Kuwait financial system should be preserved 
and the welfare of Kuwait's future generation must be protected. I arrived last night, actually. I'm staying at the governor's hotel, uh, and I, I, uh, I was walking, uh, taking a stroll, and I came across a very nice museum. I, I mean, uh, a monument. It's, it's, it's the uh, Animals in War monument across from the, uh, the governors. And there is a very interesting uh, sign. It's about mules carrying ammunition. Uh, I don't know whether you've seen that, that, that memorial. And there is a sign saying they had no choice. I hope that we will be better than the mules and have better choices. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Moat, for that uh, engaging and very sobering analysis of the financial sustainability and financial stability in Kuwait and in the Gulf more generally. I think most of us who live here in the West have been struck by how austerity reforms and the fiscal and sovereign debt crises in Western Europe, in the Eurozone, have so dramatically arisen. And we are all painfully aware of how, until, yeah, until very recently, countries like Spain and Italy seem to actually have had relatively healthy uh, sovereign debt balance sheets. And the speed of events with which financial crises have transformed into sovereign debt crises and to a crisis throughout the Eurozone, throughout the Western world, has been dramatic and surprising. Um, the Sheikh Dr. Mohammed has told us about how while there are these short-term concerns with fiscal sustainability here in the West, there are also long-term fiscal sustainability issues in Kuwait and elsewhere. They have to do with managing the wealth of natural resources, intergenerational equity, uh, but also dealing with political movements such as the Arab Spring. And he's given us a set of numbers that tell us about how dramatic uh, these events will have an impacting Kuwait's financial position. One issue that I thought might also have been interesting to discuss further would be developments in the United States in terms of the U.S. and Western development of exploitation of shale, oil, and gas. The United States imagines that it's on its way to energy autarky very rapidly. Its reliance on hydrocarbons from the rest of the world will decline dramatically. And even as Today, Kuwait actually relies far less on exports to the West and far more on exports to the East, to developing Asia, rapidly growing economies like China, which are hungry for natural resources. Even then, we are fearful of how growth, the growth slowdown in the United States and Western Europe will impact the global economy generally and therefore will impact finances throughout Kuwait and the Gulf. With that as an opening background, perhaps I can now turn to Dr. Stefan to take us through the remainder of the presentations this morning. Great, yeah. Th thank you very much, Danny. Uh, uh, good morning. Th thanks a lot to, to LSE and to the Kuwait program at KFAS for, for giving me the opportunity to speak here. Um, I have to say, it's, I think, the earliest presentation in terms of time of day that I've done in my career. So if I'm not completely compost mentis, then, then uh, I, I, I beg your forbearance. 
Um, I, I do have a lot of slides. Uh, I do have a lot of slides, but I, I can guarantee that it's mostly graphs. It's no text, so I hope it, it, won't, it won't be death by PowerPoint. Also, Dr. Mohammed has in fact anticipated quite a few of the things I was going to say, so I hope I can move through uh, fairly briskly. Um, so what, what I look at briefly is uh, how the GCC economies have been doing during the recent crisis, both the global and the European financial crisis and the regional Arab crisis, how they've managed to actually get through the crisis with um, comparatively minor damage, but how that also reflects their long-term dependence on the state in a way that is not fiscally sustainable, is also not sustainable in terms of labor market developments and, and in terms of uh, economic diversification. So first of all, if we look at this slide, we see actually that compared to the rest of uh, the Middle East and North African region, the GCC has uh, evinced quite decent growth rates throughout both the global financial crisis and more recently uh, the Arab regional crisis, which has depressed growth or which has led to negative growth rates in a couple of countries. Um, and uh, the main explanation for that, which on the face of it looks uh, quite good and quite, uh, quite uh, reassuring, is uh, essentially that the state has stepped in on a very, very large scale, both through higher current spending uh, and through higher capital spending, higher spending on projects, and it has stepped in a lot of cases where foreign joint venture partners left projects, where uh, the project finance market froze and state-owned funds then stepped in to guarantee loans or to take direct equity shares in projects. Uh, there were a lot of credit guarantees when the local banking market uh, froze uh, in the wake of both the uh, the global capital market crisis and, and the euro crisis. Uh, so there was quite a bit of state-directed allocation of loans and, and loan guarantees, uh, all, of which, uh, all of which was a good thing to do in the short run. It was counter-cyclical. It was the way that, that states should behave, but it has ratcheted in state activity in the GCC on an even higher level. It has, it has ratcheted up uh, state dependence and uh, state expenditure on a level that's probably not sustainable in the long run. Uh, you see here uh, the government share in total capital formation over time, so total fixed uh, investment in the GCC economies, and you see that there's been an uptick recently. It's not as high as in the 70s when the state was really the only game around in the GCC economies, but they've taken a significant share uh, in most of the countries. Uh, in capital formation where previously the private sector used to dominate. So it's really the, the stepping in of the state that has saved the GCC economies. But um, I'll argue that the state has in fact always been very strong and even during the boom decade in the, in the 2000s when a lot of people thought we're on the way to private sector driven diversification, the story is essentially a story of state driven capital allocation and of, uh, of state intervention and of, of pro-cyclical fiscal policy. So uh, if you look at the slide here that shows uh, the ratio of government to private consumption uh, in 2000 and in 2009, so that's the blue and the red graphs, you see that that has remained on a very high level. In some cases, it has increased throughout the boom decade, and it is much higher than in, comp than in uh, advanced economies like Germany and Singapore, and it's, it's even much higher than in an emerging market like Turkey. The one exception of the UAE, I think, is bad data. I think they don't, they don't capture uh, Emirate-level data well. Generally speaking, uh, government consumption plays a much, much larger role uh, in the total economy. And that doesn't even account for the oil sector. So that leaves out the oil sector, which is completely state-run, than in uh, the advanced economies that are often used as a benchmark for, for the GCC. Um, the state also has 
still a very, very high share in employment. The basic pattern here to summarize that graph is that you have a private sector where employment is dominated by expatriates. And you have a public sector with uh, much higher wages in general where employment is by and large dominated by nationals. And so you have that labor market segmentation where nationals have reservation wages because of the very advantageous employment conditions in the public sector that deter them from joining the private sector where they have to compete with really third world nationals. And that's something that also hasn't changed throughout the decade. You've had a huge expansion in employment in the private sector which was largely accommodated through additional uh, labor migration, through additional labor imports. Um, you have that breakdown here for Kuwait where you see that the private sector is dominated by expatriates. There are a couple of, just a handful of nationals in the private sector and then you have a public sector, uh, so government employment that is dominated by, by nationals. And it would look the same uh, in detail for, for all the other GCC countries. Um, and you uh, also see now, if you look at Saudi data here, that public employment has been increasing every year. There's been political pressure to ratchet up the total number of state employees every single year, even in the 1980s and 1990s when they were running out of money, running huge deficits. This is the bedrock of distributional spending that's always been protected, that's in fact been expanded at the, at the time when those governments ran out of money. And you see that uh, the growth of state employees has been much higher than the growth of state expenditure. So that means that salary spending has been crowding out other types of spending, particularly uh, capital spending, spending on, on infrastructure. Um, there's, there's another way in which the state has uh, driven economic development, and that is just through uh, fiscal stimulus. Uh, there's a slight way, uh, there's a slight difference in the way that fiscal stimulus works nowadays. In the 70s, the early 80s, the heyday, the golden era of contracting, a lot of businesses made money through direct uh, government contracts. Nowadays, there's a more substantial consumer demand. Uh, so you could say that, well, things have become uh, more privately driven, they've become more reliant on uh, competitive consumer markets where you don't have, you know, monopoly contracting, although sometimes you have monopoly trade agencies, uh, but if you scratch the surface a bit, you actually see that almost all of the consumer demand is in fact government driven because almost all of it comes from state employees. You do have private sector employees, the expatriates who largely remit their income abroad, so they're not a factor in the local consumer economy, and you have a tiny number of nationals in the private sector who earn less than the nationals on average. Uh, in the public sector. So yes, there's a big private consumer market, but it's all indirectly driven through, through quasi-Keynesian uh, uh, state spending on salaries. And I, I, yesterday I calculated a few figures to show you the, the, the scale of this, uh, of this phenomenon. All Saudis in the private sector, according to, to uh, data from the General Organization for Social uh, Insurance, uh, they earn about 50 billion Saudi rials. That's the total wage bill for Saudis. The expats earn about 75 billion Saudi rials, and more than half of that is remitted abroad. The most recent estimates for expatriate remittance are actually 100 billion, so it's larger than the official wage bill. Uh, so, I mean, there's some discrepancy there, but we can be sure that most of it is remitted abroad. So the total private wage bill, the wage share in the economy is about 7% of GDP. So that's tiny, tiny. That is not a driver of economic growth. By contrast, Saudis in the civil service have a total wage bill of about 300 billion Saudi rials. That's about a quarter of the total economy. So even private consumer markets are driven indirectly by state spending. And the figures would be comparable for all the other GCC countries, or even more strikingly imbalanced, because there's even less private employment of, of nationals, who are the only significant local consumers. 
So consumer markets were insulated against the crisis because no one was fired. Everyone was government employed. If anything, government increased salaries during the recent crisis and increased public employment. So actually consumer markets were booming. But it ratcheted up state uh, dependence of the economy on an, on an even higher level. So here, uh, and you see that if, if you'd run some time series tests on state spending as compared to uh, the total private sector share in the GDP, you'd see that in the long run, there's a very tight dependence of the size of the private sector uh, relative to uh, state spending. And of course, in a normal tax-based economy, you can say that, well, it's not clear which way causality runs. If the private sector grows, there's more taxes. More taxes means you can spend more publicly. It's not the case in the GCC. It's clear that the causality runs from public spending to private sector growth because there's no taxation feedback loop. The, the, the private sector doesn't pay any significant taxes. So this is driven by state spending. Those are the Saudi data. And Kuwait looks, exact, it looks exactly the same. If you scaled up the, uh, the, the state spending on a, on a second axis, you'd, say that it, you'd see that it attracts private sector GDP very closely. You can run time series tests and co-integration analysis to show that in the short run, there's a bit more autonomous growth of the private sector nowadays than was the case in the 70s and 80s. In the long run, they move very, very closely together. Um, now, here's, here's a quiz for you. Um, what do you think are the six largest listed companies in the GCC? Um, you know, come up with a, with a list in your head. I'll, I'll give you a couple of seconds. Um, now, it's Sabic, Arashi Bank, uh, so two Saudi companies, Etisalat, uh, UAE, Telecoms Company, Industries, Qatar, uh, Zain in Kuwait, uh, Saudi Telecom, and, and Qatar National Bank. And what, what do they all have in common? There's one important thing they all have in common. They're all part of majority government owned. So if you look at the diversification into those big new strategic sectors during the last decade, telecoms, ICT, logistics, aviation, uh, 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 advanced petrochemicals, it's all been happening. It's all been driven by state-owned companies. So the private sector does follow into those sectors. It's a good imitator, it's a good follower, but it's not a strategic leader. So all the diversification we've seen, with the exception of some tourism uh, uh, services and light manufacturing, has really been state-driven, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But in the long run, you arguably can't run a modern diversified economy just on the basis of public sector entities. Um, ironically, it's less of, a, less of an issue in Kuwait where uh, the public sector has had political problems, problems of being autonomously run, so development there is relatively more private sector driven. Even Zayn is majority privately owned. It only has uh, a small indirect government share. Um, and uh, even Equate, the, the heavy industry company, it's got only a, a minority government share. As soon as there's a majority share, things tend to go pear-shaped because of uh, the political process. Um, so uh, what has happened in the course of the recent crisis is that all those patterns of state dependence have actually deepened. So the, the, the continuous growth has come at the uh, cost of even deeper state uh, dependency. There were stepped up state employment, stepped up spending on subsidies, uh, subsidized food, uh, decrease of, of uh, certain utility and public service prices. And that, of course, has led to... Uh, oops, those are just some profit figures of a number of state-owned companies showing you that they've been quite profitable for, for a long time. Uh, but what I really want to show you is this, and that is the dramatic increase in break-even oil prices. Those are recent figures from the IMF, where on the x-axis, 
you see how much break-even oil prices have increased just the last two years. And you see that uh, they've been increasing for the most part uh, between 20 and $40 per barrel. And you know, a decade ago, the break-even oil price was 20 or $30 per barrel, depending on which, uh, which case you look at. So they've quadrupled in a couple of cases. And they're above $100 per barrel for a number of countries. Actually quite low for Kuwait, uh, which is because the Kuwaiti government never manages to spend the money it actually allocates in the budget, mostly uh, to, at the expense of capital expenditure and investment because large projects don't make it past parliament. So if you look at only at current expenditure on wages, uh, subsidies, benefits, it's as high and as problematic in Kuwait as in the other GCC countries. Um, so state dependence has been uh, deepened fiscally. There, there's a long-term sustainability issue there. And uh, also the dependence of nationals on public sector employment has deepened. If anything, uh, open migration has been further stepped up uh, in some cases. Fees on expatriate labor have been removed, further incentivizing expatriate as opposed to national employment. Uh, and that has increased the wage gap between nationals on the private sector and expatriates on the private sector. And it has incentivized low productivity growth because the incentive is to uh, grow in a factor-intensive way with as much cheap labor as you can get, which is very low-tech growth. And in fact, um, you'll see that um, productivity, labor productivity, which has never been high in the GCC, has in most cases declined throughout the last three decades because there have been ever more imports of low-skilled labor. So that, that again, is a, uh, is a result of state decisions, of a particular migration regime, and is something that's not sustainable in the long run if you want to move on an uh, advanced uh, trajectory of, of high-tech development, which is what a lot of at least the public sector entities in the Gulf are now trying to do. Um, you see here um, what, what causes the productivity decline, uh, namely the, the, the huge imports of cheap foreign labor. Uh, and you see here that there's a huge gap in wages in the private sector for Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis. So Kuwaitis are a lot more expensive to employ, which is why their uh, overall employment numbers are, uh, are so tiny. Um, although larger than the UAE and Qatar, there's actually more Kuwaitization than the other two uh, high-rent GCC countries. Um, so that, that, that's it in terms of slides. I'll just make a final remark on the fiscal sustainability. Um, growth, obviously, in the GCC requires ever higher state spending. It's not one of stimuli, but it has to remain on a very high level, and additional growth requires even higher spending. Uh, so you have this lock-in effect, uh, and you have no private demand, uh, or very little private demand or productivity growth due to reliance on low-cost labor where wages are remitted. You have no contribution of the private sector to state income. You have no Keynesian multiplier, so it's not that you spend money and then because the economy grows, you have more revenue. The revenue is autonomous of the local economy. So economic growth doesn't help the fiscal situation. If anything, it hinders. It makes uh, the fiscal situation more problematic. And what, what there's need for in the long run is a non-hydrocarbons fiscal basis and a truly private demand based on uh, national employment, which can only be the result of labor market reforms that all the governments have been shirking away from because it's so politically touchy. No one's willing to confront the private sector right now mm. after the Arab Spring. But in the long run, unless there's some sort of limit to low-cost expatriate uh, migration and that there's a forceful push to making nationals more competitive on the private market and limiting the public sector intake, there's never going to be an autonomous private economy that, that can live on the basis of its own demand and that could be the basis for uh, 
a true uh, taxation regime in the long run. So I'll, I'll stop right here. I'm, oh, I'm uh, actually sort of on time, and uh, I think we'll open the floor to, to questions yeah. now. Thank you, Stefan, for your... <laughs> really interesting and informative discussion on the large role of the state in Kuwait and the Gulf more generally. Uh, he has documented for us how much state intervention occurs in just macroeconomic scale, in structure, and in microeconomic details of what happens at the corporate level. Uh, he's also told us what's happening with labor markets and how that impacts the fiscal position and how that relates to really external circumstances, not just the Western downturn that we're going through in, along the transatlantic axis, but what's going to happen longer term in terms of the market for hydrocarbons and its impact on the price of oil, critical for economic performance in the region. 